Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And in this episode, we are going to ruin the movie Oppenheimer. With a very special guest. But also, I almost feel like we're ruining the white male genius part 753. Three, Like, I feel like this is, you know, that's our job. That is our job. We bring down the idea of the white male genius. I mean, honestly, we had one episode on it. And like, we've referred back to that a million times since. But we actually haven't dived into that specific theme in a while. So I'm excited to get into some real meaty, extraordinary white man stuff. All right. But first, how are we doing? And what are we drinking? Are you asking me? Or, well, I'm asking myself, how am I doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. It's the first day of school back at LAUSD in mid-August, which is ridiculous. And I got talked into, you know, when your mom just makes you do some bullshit and it's clearly about her own performance of power and you're like, I'm 46 years old. Why am I still, why am I still dealing with this? <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, today I got sort of harassed by my mom into doing house things that I didn't really have time for, but I was like, okay, fine. Wait, doing things in her house? No, in my house. Like there's a bookshelf in my house, in my daughter's room that she doesn't like. Wait, that your mom doesn't like, not that the daughter doesn't doesn't like. The daughter likes it. I like (laughs) it. She just, it's this Israeli mother. She doesn't have enough to do. She doesn't have enough to worry about. So she worries about the bookshelves in my daughter's room. It's fine. There's a new bookshelf. I wasted a half a day on it. While she, and she didn't even do it. She's like, I'll be there and I can help you. So I'll be there all day. So you just can't do any work and because I'll be there helping you. And she just sat there and watched me as I did these tasks that she had sort of like harassed me into do. Anyway. Amazing. It's fine. The power of, as yeah. Guy Branham says, there's no tiger mom with Jews because the Jewish mother is the apex predator. This is true. Right. I am drinking tequila and lime, and I'm very excited about this episode. Now, Rebecca, how are you doing? What are you drinking? I'm doing great. Um, I'm drinking, okay, I'm drinking a drink that I'm going to call the Los Alamos Mule. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Moscow Mule, but I added in um, Ancho Reyes liqueur which is ancho chili flavored liqueur. And that didn't give it enough of a bite for me. So I added habanero shrub. So it's got like, it's like a mule with a kick. I would have, I wanted to use Sotol as the base liquor because that would be appropriate for the Southwestern United States, but we're out of Sotol. So I just used vodka, which is the traditional mule ingredient, but I I like it. It's kind of nice with a little bit of spiciness. Oh, that's good. Um, Yeah, I was going to tell you what I've been up to lately, and then I forgot what it was. So (laughs) the drink is already working. It's already hard at work. Everything's going well. It's already obliterating your mind. Um, Well, while you continue to be obliterated, I do want to enjoy that one of our listeners uh, was listening to our episode on the Supreme Court and said that it was so good, but it was also so depressing that she had to listen to The Cure to cheer herself up. (laughs) And (laughs) 
Um, and I also want to share that for some reason, my son figured out how to get on our our Discord. What on the Sauce Speakeasy? And I know he is not a patron, so we have to figure that out. We have a security breach. We, we have a security breach. Figure that out. So while we have a security breach, guys, find us on the Sauce Speakeasy. But then, if you want to stay with us after we repair the security breach, you have to become members of our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Sauce Podcast, and join us for conversations. Um, and actually, I just. Very, very briefly, one of our listeners was talking, um, he started watching this show on Netflix called The Lincoln Lawyer. It's about this like, do good lawyer who runs his whole law firm out of the back of his Lincoln car. Uh, And he calls back to our Copaganda episode, where uh, he says the appeal for him touches on the same thing as the Copaganda procedurally, of having a system where there are skilled law professionals acting in good faith to attain objective justice. Mm. That whole fantasy that we wish the real justice system was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, indeed. It's true. It's very true. All right. I am extraordinarily excited to have somebody on the show who I've wanted to have on forever. Uh, Ellen Sebastian Chang. She's a legendary theater director, visual and conceptual artist. Uh, For the past 17 years, she's been the creative director of the World As It Could Be Human Rights Education Program. She is a teacher and an artist and just my idol. And, uh, (laughs) And because I only work with the best people, we have also been collaborators on projects that are really super important to me. And I've wanted her to come on. And she inspired this episode. She's like, Maya, I'm coming on to do Oppenheimer. Yes! So, which forced Rebecca to watch it. I'm sorry. Yes. I have to say, I am thrilled to have you here, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us. I am not thrilled that I spent three hours of my life watching that movie, but we'll get into that shortly. I did it for you too, for the both of you, because I love you. Okay. Uh, before we get into it, get into detail about it, Ellen, we must know how you are doing and what you are drinking. Well, um, I'm going to say that I'm really excited. I called Maya up. I actually saw Oppenheimer at IMAX 1030 showing in Emeryville, California. Got out <laughs> at two in the morning, the movie theater much to my surprise, was packed at 10.30 at night on a Monday. Wow. And so I'll just start saying that. And so um, I am having a classic Manhattan. Oh, I love it. That's right. (laughs) But I'm also on the side having some Zen party mix to add that little extra crunch and to think of, um, yeah, where we're going to go with this, where... You know, what's this Zen party mix mean in relationship to the Manhattan and the Manhattan Project? So, well, it's amazing. You saw it at 1030 at night. 
at the IMAX cinemas in in LA because it's such a long movie and you can't squeeze in that many screenings. They were having 6 a.m. screenings, and that's when Ben and I went because that was the only time we could get tickets to see it on IMAX. Wow. How crowded was it at 6 a.m.? It was packed, especially because L.A. film nerds, they know what part of the theater, if you're seeing IMAX, it's only a certain kind of set of rows that you really want to be sitting in. And so that section, I got the the last two seats. Hmm. It was packed. And that was something I think you mentioned. The event of watching it was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh my God, we're all here at six in the morning at the Chinese theater in Hollywood. Wow. And it's the same with like, it's two in the morning and we're all leaving this theater from this, you know, giant spectacle. Um, but I thought that actually we could start because we're, I think what we're interested in is what movies like Oppenheimer, the stories that movies like Oppenheimer block out. So I thought we would start by talking about Oppenheimer, almost like speed crit, (laughs) and and then get to what it's hiding as opposed to what it's showing. But first, we could just talk about the movie and what we thought of it. So I think we should even set a timer and just like (laughs) knock it out. All right, we can do that. How long do you think it'll take us, Maya? I think we can knock it out in 10. I think the three of us could just like... Be real. 10, and if we have to add another two. Right. I'll put on a timer for 10 minutes, and we will see where we are in 10 minutes. Oh, and by the way, guys, spoiler alert. All right, friends? (laughs) Tell me. Yes. If you you haven't seen the Oppenheimer movie, um, nor read the Wikipedia article about him... (laughs) There will be spoilers. Okay, I am starting the timer now. Ten minutes on the clock. So I just wanted to open by saying that as we were getting towards the end of the movie, my husband leaned over and whispered to me, I feel like we're watching a Wikipedia article. Exactly what you said, like, that the movie was just kind of like... That's incredible to me because I truly said almost the exact same thing to my husband, Matt. I had read the Wikipedia article about Oppenheimer before seeing it, and it was like watching the Wikipedia article get acted out. It was like watching actors perform that article. It's very funny that Ben and I had that same thought. And what a parade of actors it was. It was like Mm. this parade of very established fancy people as, as like extras, as, you know... 32nd. Yeah. I, I thought at a certain point that Rami Malek was not going to have a speaking role. <laughs> like <laughs> he, he appeared in two or three scenes where he had no lines. And I was like, huh. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Of course, then he has a pivotal sort of role at the very end. But even so, yeah, there was some interesting casting. I mean, it, it was like my eyes kept bugging out going, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's this? Who's that? And just agreed. Like, I just felt like um, Christopher Nolan has that kind of cachet that people just say, oh, sure, Uh I'll be your extra. I'll be your extra. Right. Oh, oh, I'm happy just just, to be in it. I just want to hang out for the day with with all of you. And um, sure, I'll just show up. And that's the thing is that Christopher Nolan has that cachet of like being the great director. And apparently... He wrote the script in first person, which we'll get back to later. Like he actually wrote the Oppenheimer script 
from Oppenheimer's point of view. Like, I walk up to the window and stare out thinking about Adams. I swear to God. And all the actors were like, oh, it's evidence of his great genius. I know, I know. And it explains (laughs) a lot. But the entire third act and what felt like most of the movie is taken up by the failed confirmation hearing for Secretary of Commerce of Louis Strauss and Oppenheimer's failed renewal of receiving security status from the government. Like, oh my God, the whole third act was these two Jews mm-hmm. trying to get get their, their stamp of approval. And you're like, what that to me was the part where I was like, what? Like, I'll go along with the Wikipedia article. But I was like, why? Because for every minute spent on that, you're not spending a minute on something else. And what I learned is that Oppenheimer's hearing that they dramatize was the most honestly that Oppenheimer ever has spoken about his life and most directly. And yes, it is in the structure of a trial, which is inherently dramatic. The basic procedural structure, it's very compelling. This guy says something, this guy challenges it, and it's all guys. Okay. And it's true that Strauss's confirmation hearing is when the fact that he tried to sabotage Oppenheimer also undid his own career. But like, who cares? Who cares? Like, we spend all this time on these two Jewish men losing their institutional power in petty ways. Right. I I felt sort of like um, that third act was an homage to um, bureaucracy. (laughs) And it's something that, you know, as we go further to talk about destroying the idea of not only the, the great white male genius, to me, that was an elevation, a dramatization of what I think is truly killing us all, which is the white mindset of the love of regulation, bureaucracy, mm. paperwork, endless, endless legislative. And like, can we make that sexy? Can we make that dynamic? <laughs> and part of me like goes, it's maddening. It is absolute madness. Yeah. But also the love of the love of hierarchy. Absolutely. Hierarchy. Yes. Hierarchy as this as this thing to sort of appeal to so that even when Strauss loses his his spot and that's like the big ha ha gotcha line of the movie and the guy says to him, "Oh yeah, this one senator voted against you." Yeah, who was it? This young guy from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy, and you're like, right, "Yeah, right. cuz the future president hierarchy. Ooh, like making that very sexy. Yeah. And I also think that the structure of the movie, I I think is sort of of a piece with a lot of Nolan's stuff or Mm. the way people think of Nolan's stuff. um, Like his movies are thought of as being these complex puzzle boxes. But the thing is, and I, I hope I'm not going to offend too many listeners with this because I know Nolan has a lot of fans, but his movies have always struck me as being movies that are presenting themselves to you as smart, but they're not. They're movies that <laughs> seem smart if you're not thinking about it too much. Like, I remember when that, when um, Inception came out and everyone was talking about it. Oh, it's so crazy. It's confusing. It's weird. I'm not sure I understood it. And you go and watch it. And in fact, 
it's completely straightforward. <laughs> Half of the movie is one of the characters telling you how everything works. Here's what happens. You go into dream level one, then you go into, if you have a dream in that dream, you go into the next level. Here's what happens if you don't come out. Like everything is explicitly directly stated. And then the movie proceeds to show you what you were just told. Like those things all happen exactly as you were told they would. And there's nothing confusing or puzzling about it. And that to me is the sort of essence of what Nolan's movies seem like to me. Like in this film, he has these three timelines. There's the 1940s Manhattan Project timeline. There's the 1950s security clearance timeline. And then there's the 1960s Strauss's confirmation timeline. And they're interwoven in this way that I think is intended to be complex and maybe confusing, like you're not going to see how it all ties together, but it's all actually really straightforward. It's just a frame tale with flashbacks. It's just, there's two frames in different time periods, but it's not, I don't know. It, it does come together at the end in the big revelation of Strauss's having sabotaged Oppenheimer's security clearance. But like, by that point, you absolutely know that that's the truth. Like, right. also, if you've read the Wikipedia article, you definitely know. That's the truth, so. <laughs> but then also, I feel like the Nolan twist where where I'm a step ahead of him, because a lot of it is about you see them being very petty. And you see the petty of I'm not shaking your hand or all these little games mm. that happen within the hierarchical structure, right? And so I was like, oh, well, then is the point of the movie about how these men are playing chess with our very existence and yet for them it's a bunch of petty bullshit like is is that what he's trying to say and then i was like no that's what i'm seeing <laughs> yeah right exactly that's what you're seeing it's not what he's trying to say that's right um spe speaking of nolan and what i find to be some things that are characteristic in his movies oftentimes in his movies women are the ones who are like the location of all emotional content. Mm -hmm. The men are like the puzzle solvers, which is definitely the case in this movie, where Oppenheimer is the puzzle solver and his... Oh, that's the timer, by the way. Uh, but we're almost uh, there. I think okay. we're almost really we're, there. <laughs> there's almost and there's almost. But uncharacteristically, I will try to keep it brief. Um, just that his love interests, the two women who are there, Jean uh, Tatlock and his wife, Kitty, they are the ones that have all the feelings. Mm -hmm. They have all of the anger and the sadness. And there's definitely a thing where Oppenheimer likes sad women. He just seems to be a, to find that appealing. But we don't get much insight, if any, into why that would be. Because he is kind of almost not a blank slate, but the main emotions he has are basically guilt over Gene's suicide. He definitely feels bad about that or responsible for that. And he feels guilt over the creation of the bomb and the bombing <laughs> of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is like, good, you're a human being. But uh, I think there's something interesting in that, in that the, the main emotion he's allowed to have is surrounding the idea of responsibility for his actions. The idea of losing responsibility of something he created where the relationship also is losing responsibility of something he created. Mm -hmm. It's just on a much smaller scale. No, and that's so interesting that you're saying that, Rebecca, because it makes me think of the focus that 
though brief, that was spent upon the 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 crying child, the crying, the incessant crying of the child, and then removing that child to another household. And so that's so so interesting that you talk about like the women being the emotional catalyst, but I also saw that child that he is a part of birthing into the world, you know, with Kitty, Mm -hmm. and then that becoming um, something that feels uncontrollable and almost just a catalyst for chaos because the child was incessantly crying. And then the child is removed. The child, the child was never not crying. The yeah, child yeah. was Actually, there only to cry. Yeah. That hundred, you're a hundred percent. And the thing about these women in real life is that they were actually very brilliant and extraordinary women. All of that was, was stripped out. Um, there's even this brief mention of this potential affair that he had with the wife of a scientist. It's never mentioned that she was the head psychiatrist of Los Alamos. And he had a very profound, deep, potentially not at all sexual relationship with her. And so you're like, God, I'm sure there were so many things that she observed and witnessed. And that could have been such a locus for a real conversation about... Insight she could have had about the psychological effect of working on such a project and seeing the, its fruition and seeing the consequences of it. She could have been a perfect vehicle for exploring some of those ideas that, I don't know, Nolan doesn't actually seem particularly interested in exploring. Not at all. Not at all. So it brings us to this idea of Oppenheimer as the great man, the great male genius, and how the movie realizes that idea. And I want to quote something that Ellen wrote, because I think that it just nails it. And then we're going to tell you about how they do that, which is the singular genius narrative in storytelling erases the disposable masses and continues to view us as only the support to the values of a hierarchy of who is most valuable. And I feel like that ends up being the theme of the movie. Yeah. I felt like the key for me for seeing the theme of the movie was looking at Nolan's use of black and white versus color film. And I don't know what I was expecting. Um, I was sort of thinking of Oliver Stone's JFK because I knew going into it that he was going to do that, go back and forth, different um, film types. And in JFK, I I can't speak to it. I haven't, even though I'm sure I wrote an essay about it in grad school, I haven't (laughs) watched it in 20 years. But I do recall a lot of the black and white footage and the grainy footage being intended to look documentary style that and that was part of the controversy around that movie was that he was mixing real documentary footage with sort of faux documentary footage and this made people very uncomfortable this movie doesn't get anywhere near that interesting with those techniques in fact it's very straightforward all of the scenes that are from strauss's point of view are in black and white even strauss's flashbacks are in black and white All of the scenes that involve 
Oppenheimer, from his point of view, I should say, are in color. Mm -hmm. Now, the 1950s scenes during the security clearance hearing are in a kind of a grainier, more washed out, less saturated color. But the flashbacks to the 20s through 40s are all in vivid, gorgeous color. And there's even a point in the film where we've been seeing a flashback to the post-war era where they're discussing the H-bomb and Oppenheimer's opposition to it, right? And up until a certain point, it's Strauss's flashback, so the scene's all in black and white. Then you get to the point where Oppenheimer, in his hearing, is asked about it, and he flashes back to the same scene, and now it's in color, just in case you weren't sure that that's exactly what Nolan was doing. And there's, I feel like, no way to interpret that other than he's saying that a, a, a functionary like Strauss is, you know, he's a mediocre person and his life lacks color. He's just a dull functionary, whereas Oppenheimer lives in color. He lives in brilliant color. And not only are the flashbacks in color, but interspersed within them are these cutaways to fiery explosions and sparks, you know, that might be atoms or they might be sparks of fire and things like that, you know, black holes happening in space. And um, they're very vibrant and exciting and they kind of come out of nowhere. And the whole impression is this person's life is more rich. His imagination is more full than, than yours, <laughs> or at least than Strauss's. And then, and then that brings it to the thing where, I mean, we could say that that's just happening and how it's filmed, but it's also, just in case you don't get it, <laughs> made totally explicit in the script, where you were saying, Rebecca, that, that Strauss at one point just castigates Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. and everything that he says about Oppenheimer is true. Yeah, there's this big monologue he has in the end when it finally comes out that he's done the bad thing, Strauss has. And he lays into Oppenheimer, and I don't remember everything he says, but he says things like, oh, if he had it to do over again, he wouldn't change a thing. And I'm watching it, I'm like, that's right, that's right. And mm -hmm. he just loves, you know, he's talking about how Oppenheimer just loves the attention. Oppenheimer wants everything to be about him. And I'm like, that's right. That's what this movie has shown to me. I mean... To, to a large extent, it's what I understand about Oppenheimer as a figure in history, but also that's what this movie has shown me directly. And Strauss is saying all of these things, and I'm like, these are legit criticisms. Mm -hmm. But then the movie is landing in this place of, but, but Strauss is the villain. He is the bad guy. Therefore, everything he's saying can be discounted. We're not to take it seriously because it's coming from this place of envy, of resentment and envy because Oppenheimer is lauded and appreciated and can do great things and Strauss can't do any of them. And that line, yes, these people are thinking about more important things than you. That Strauss isn't really, Strauss may be right and he is, but he can't understand it because he can't think about such important things. Mm -hmm. He says to his aide, Oppenheimer turned all the scientists against me. That's why Einstein wouldn't shake my hand. That's why he brushed past me that time, right, right at the very beginning of the movie. And his assertion is that 
Oppenheimer said something to Einstein in that moment that turned him, uh, turned Einstein against Strauss. And the aide says, maybe they were talking about something more important. That's and I'm like, there it is. There it is. And then you find out what they were talking about. And it, yes, it is more important. And it just seems like this is where the movie is landing with this, like, these people are more important. Yeah. Their minds are on more important things. You are petty for caring about anything except the great concerns about the future of humanity. These great men, that's what they concern themselves with. And the tragedy isn't the fucking atomic bomb. <laughs> the tragedy is that the world only appreciated Oppenheimer when he was useful to them. And they just cannot grasp his greatness. Like that's that's the sad story because Oppenheimer is painted as an artist. Right. He's painted as an artist, not just a scientific genius. It's so beyond that. He's an artistic genius. And that's why we have all these cutaways to the black holes and the fire. And like, that's where the whole IMAX thing is goo, 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 yeah, like, yeah. Right. so it's also, look at me, Christopher <laughs> Nolan, artistic genius, finding ways to communicate this as a cinema maker. That's right. Yeah. And also that, you know, the, the references to, to, to poetry and art and yes. the, the symphony and, and so there's a lot of ways for Christopher Nolan, he is Oppenheimer, you know, in his direction. He he is identified with that character and elevating that character. And also, I think what is so interesting, especially about what you're noting there, Rebecca, is that it's how genius, creative, artistic genius is always in collaboration with the bureaucratic, regulatory, mundane, yes, genocidal elements of society so that the genius can have the doubt, but the genius is forced to be complicit with the war machine, complicit with the violence, because then it's that's the role of the Strauss, of the general, is to rationalize, right? you know, this unbridled violence, you know, and this unbridled erasure of the rest of us, you know, the rest of us. And, and by doing that, it's excusing Oppenheimer yes. for being a part of that, because he was just the genius. I mean, what did I have to do with, you know, like... I didn't oh, think absolutely. about how they were going to use this. And so he gets to sort of um, be clean of that. I, I, I mean, I don't think, for instance, in John Adams' uh, Dr. Atomic, mm. the great uh, opera about Oppenheimer, it's much more about Oppenheimer's as this locus of, of terrible torment and pain over what he's doing <laughs> like, yeah that's the whole thing and with this i don't think i don't think it was i don't no, think it was throughout the entire process where the manhattan project is ongoing and the bomb is being invented there's very little if any of that tension or conflict around should we be doing this and you know to be fair 
they were fighting the Nazis and you're talking about Jewish characters who know what that means in the moment. And so uh, it's it's somewhat understandable. And then you reach that moment in the movie where Germany has is in effect defeated and you watch from there as, first of all, the movie has Oppenheimer give a speech to his people who are all like, we can stop this now. We don't have to do this. And he has to give them a speech to get them to keep going. And then, yeah, after the bomb is dropped, there's this, uh, you know, there's like this sound thing they kept doing where it's like sounded like a freight train, like Mm -hmm. the slow sound of a freight train getting faster and faster. And you don't know what it is. It seems to be in Oppenheimer's mind. And then you find out that what it is, is the stamping feet of the appreciative crowd cheering him on after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But, But that's, that's the thing. It's the freight train. It's the idea that, he got on this train for all the right reasons, but then once he was on it, it was going to go without him. And that's what Einstein tells him at the end, because Christopher Nolan never met a theme. He didn't want to have a character tell you uh, directly, right? <laughs> he has Einstein say, you know, you gave me that award. That award meant you were done with me. And now they're done with you. Um, which is why the 1950s scenes with Oppenheimer are kind of desaturated. And there's even a quick brief flash forward and he gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I think. And it's even less saturated. And the sort of idea is that the artistic, meaningful colors fade over time as he's sort of fading in importance, in public importance. And because that that's the tragedy, like you were saying, Maya. The tragedy isn't necessarily the bomb. The tragedy is that the world is just going to take what Oppenheimer gives them. They're going to take what this great genius, this great artist creates, and they're going to do with it what they want, and they're going to leave him behind. And I feel like in terms of a couple of things that, you know, when we're talking about what gets elided with the whole third act of this fucking bureaucratic aria, Like one of the moments a friend of mine was talking about where he said like the moment in Chicago where they were theorizing that by setting off this bomb, they could be starting a chain reaction that just never would stop. He's like, that was kind of a big and important moment. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like that could have been a moment of much more like conflict, drama, like what are we doing? And it just kind of gets wiped over so we can spend more time on, you know, this on Strauss not being the secretary of (laughs) commerce. He wants to set up the chain reaction line so it can have the payoff at the end, where the chain reaction is a metaphor for the things that Oppenheimer set into motion. Well, okay. We're talking about this great white male genius that that blocks out, it's like blocks out the sun. He just like explodes all over the place, blocking out all of these other stories. And so let's now talk about what those stories are that get blocked out by this story. Well, well I'm going to make it personal right now and very small, you know, small in the sense that it is the small that gets blocked out. And when I saw the film, 
as soon as I start seeing the, you know, fission and, and the explosions of these nucleuses and, and atoms, I found myself weeping because what I saw in those images, I projected onto those images, the Pueblo natives in uh, Los Alamos. I projected onto those images, um, the African-Americans that were solicited by the government from Mississippi and Louisiana and Texas to, to migrate to the Pacific Northwest to an area in Eastern Washington called the Tri-Cities. I started to see my own grandfather in those images and uh, the, the black men that I grew up in and along with the Yakima and the Walla Walla natives, I started to see the files that I had kept on the downwind women who lived in Mesa, Washington and other parts downwind of Richland, Washington and going, yeah, the chain reaction of the exploding of the, the bomb, it is with us. It is with us. It is here every day. Every day there's an explosion and an explosion and an explosion on these very interpersonal levels that we don't connect with the atom bomb and yet it's there. And and this is your family's story. Like your grandparents yeah. came to Eastern Washington, and that's where you grew up. And that is where I grew up. And we went shopping at the Atomic Market on Eastside Pasco. We got gas at the Atomic Gas Station. Uh, Richland was the rich part and where all the white people lived. And the, uh, our football team was Pasco and they were the Richland bombers and they had nuclear mushroom clouds on the side of their football helmets, which they still have today. And it became a thing where uh, young people that I were, was growing up with, that was a goal. That was an uh, aspirational goal to work at Hanford. Because Hanford was where they were enriching the uranium. Well, yeah, Hanford then... was built to produce all the plutonium that would be part of the Manhattan Project. And so Hanford, um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I really, a young adult that I really started to understand why my grandfather, when I was growing up as a child, he and large groups of black men would caravan to Alaska to build roads between Fairbanks, Juneau, and Anchorage, and I didn't understand it till much later, because why? Because once the roads were built to Hanford, there was no more work for those black laborers. Uh, and there were stories told that some of those black laborers who went out of work moved back to the South only to find out, hey man, you didn't know that you were building the roads to what was going to, to, to be the <laughs> where the plutonium would be shipped for? for the atom bomb. And so that this level of secrecy is so layered that people who continue to stay in Pasco, it took them a while to go, oh, we were a part of this. Mm. We were a part of this. And then what does that mean? And I remember um, when I would try to tell people some stuff about my childhood, 
And I said, I remembered when the Simpsons came on, I go, <laughs> I go, that's my childhood, you know, the nuclear power plant, you know, and in the small town, the small in the town like- <laughs> nuclear power plant, you know, radiation, the mythology that gets created around it, but it's not just mythology. It's, it's what some people call unreliable sources that our storytelling is unreliable. It's um, it's how my grandmother, who I go grew up fishing with, would say, I'm not eating the fish anymore. She said, because one day I was fishing and I caught a fish and I was struggling, struggling with it. And she said, and it leapt in the air and I saw flames come out of its gills. And I was like, oh, mama, really? And then I realized, I think she was telling the truth. Because once I learned about Three Mile Island and those rivers that w- would burst into flames, I go, mm, I think my mama wasn't having a religious experience. I actually <laughs> think she saw that. And, and so those are the stories that I think are so erased that people don't even believe there's Black people in the Pacific Northwest in Eastern Washington. Mm-hmm. They even start to doubt that you were even there. And I go, yes, I was there. Yes, I have a few Polaroids. I have some pictures. So this for me is where Christopher Nolan, I go, really? You couldn't take a moment to even interject through your 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 images of atoms and space just the ghosting effect. It's like that moment when Oppenheimer looks out over the land in Los Alamos. And it's that thing. It's the empty space. No one is here. No human life is here. That that trope continues. And then the disingenuous moment when he's speaking to the general and he's alluding to, we need to just stop Los Alamos. We don't need it to continue. And he says, but what will we do with it? And he says, give it back to the Indians where I just (laughs) found myself flipping, you know, the middle finger to the screen and being reminded of that disingenuous moment and hidden figures where Kevin Costner says, you know, runs down and beats down the, the whites only bathroom sign. And I'm like, really, really, I I really don't think so. And and I wanted to bring up a, a Twitter thread from a journalist and novelist, Elisa Valdez Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who um, mentions the New York Times review of Oppenheimer and says, he served as director of a clandestine weapons lab built in a near desolate stretch of Los Alamos. And she says, it was inhabited by Hispanos. They were given less than 24 hours to leave. Their farms were bulldozed. Those families had been on the same land for centuries. Oppenheimer's crew shot all their livestock through the head and bulldozed them. People fled on foot with nowhere to go. They were money poor, but they were land rich, but then their land got seized by the government. And she says all the Hispano New Mexico men who were displaced by the labs were later hired to work with beryllium. The white men got protective gear, the Hispano men did not, and they all died of barrelosis. And these were U.S. citizens. That's right. They had their land taken, their animals killed, their farms bulldozed, forced to work for the people who took everything from them and then killed by those people. And so she's talking about the story of Loida Martinez, who was a whistleblower whose family's land was seized. 
She ended up working there. She saw these Hispano men who the lab killed, and so she started filing class action lawsuits. Um, another article that uh, we found were about the downwinders from Hanford and also from Los Alamos, all of the people who were downwind of the Trinity explosion site who, you know, 10, 20 years later, they all got cancer and died. None of those stories are there. And it's amazing as you're talking to me about growing up near Hanford, how the whole complex mechanism of that gets reduced in the film to the marbles that he drops into the glass jars of how much they're managing to uh, to extract or like we have until they have enough to actually make the bomb. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point, Maya. That's a great point. The marbles. Yes. Yes. Um, one of the, the articles that it was written in Axiom called the people's truth, um, the hand, you know, about the Hanford site and the downwind people, uh, women, especially and the farmers. And I love this quote. There are some truths that most people don't believe, not because they are not true, but because like the mythical prophet Cassandra, society is resistant to them. And hmm. I think that what a film like Oppenheimer actually does is it keeps us enamored of war. It keeps us in, enamored of the rationalization of war. They'll always be a Nazi. They'll always be a, a communist. And it never strategizes against fear. It always mm -hmm. reinforces tribalism and fear. So, yes, I, there are Nazis and I am a Jewish genius. Mm -hmm. And I do not want to see my heritage, my people, my lineage wiped out. And of course you don't. And I go, hmm, what is that about white supremacy that can always rationalize its own fear, its own fear? And in the movie itself, and this was the point that I actually got so angry, is that in Oppenheimer, even he cannot imagine the devastation until he imagines it on his own people. Like he can't even imagine all of this devastation happening to Japanese people. It's like he has no empathy until he looks out at this crowd of young people applauding for him and he imagines it's this blonde woman with her face melting off. Like only when it is the blonde woman with her face melting off can he have any kind of empathy right. for the destruction. Right. But this is this is Christopher Nolan. That, right? It's not necessarily Oppenheimer. This is Christopher Nolan saying, I don't know how to convey to my audience the conflict that this character feels, the, the guilt or discomfort that he feels with what just happened, the bombing of Japan, unless I couch it this way. Imagine if it happened to you, people who look like you, presumed white audience. But I find that very interesting. The way that it purports to be, I think it's trying to be a film that's complex and dealing with like the complexities of the issue of weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. right? The film's not coming down on this like really clear rah, rah, USA, we did the right thing. No. Everything's fine. No, no, it wants you to 
sympathize with with Oppenheimer's at least ambivalence, if not outright guilt around it. And yet Nolan doesn't show you the actual devastation of the actual bombs that were dropped. And that's a choice. And I've read plenty of reviews that have rationales, you know, the idea that uh, there is pleasure in seeing something portrayed on screen and that somehow if you even portray it, then you are not properly honoring the horror of it. Mm. You know, that's that's an argument to be made. I mean, it's a conversation to be had, but I think it really bears discussing because it's a choice. He made a very distinct choice there to be like, I'm not going to show that horror. And then the other horrors, like Ellen, all of the stuff you've been talking about that he doesn't show, it's worse because the audience can be aware, will walk away going, hmm, why didn't he show Hiroshima and what happened there? That was a choice. But those other things are things most people don't even know about or think about. Those are stories that are lost. They don't know about the downwind women of Mesa and Prosser, Washington. No, when I was in my um, late 20s, I went to a couple meetings and they were starting a class action suit against Bechtel and Hanford. And part of it was about livestock. They were showing images of lambs, a lot of lambs born without eyeballs. And when I knew that I did not have the stomach and perhaps at that time, the maturity to really navigate something that happens when one of these women said, and here's a photograph of, I just want to cry every time I remember the image of her showing her child that was born with no eyes. And then this is something I recently learned through reading this Axiom article that I quoted from, was that the Pasco Slaughterhouse, which was biking distance from the little house that I grew up in, and we as kids would go over there to the slaughterhouse, would have governmental um, forces coming every every couple of months and years and actually taking livestock out, newborn livestock, and doing uh, autopsies, I guess it's called, you know, on the, the organs that were deformed. And so I had no idea about this until literally two weeks ago. Oh, my God. It's, and you know wow. what's amazing? You know what's making wow. me think of? Because I think that those stories are never told. What is the one time that I can think of, of a film that tells that story? That kind of story is Aaron Brockovich. Oh, wow. I, yeah. That, I was thinking about Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. And again, but it has to be set up as a legal procedural. Right. Yes. Where the leader is a white woman. And she's a white woman who gets to be an outsider because she's kind of like, quote, white trap, like whatever. She's like a lower class white woman who ends up coming into this legal setting and mastering it. Um, but that's the only time that we have that story when it centers her and her increasing procedural skill to then share that story. But also Mark Ruffalo's uh, Dark Waters. Mm, okay. About DuPont, the class action suit against DuPont and the poisoning of the waters and the livestock and the whole 
thing around, what is it? Carbon three that's used for Teflon as a forever, forever chemical, you know, and then showing the, the um, gastrointestinal <laughs> diseases that come from that. Um, yeah. And when I watched that film, I was like, oh, I use Teflon. <laughs> I should. Right. Oh, that I used that frying pan and then had two right. children. <laughs> I used that frying pan, pan until my close friends, uh, Sandy's dad says, who was with OSHA said, throw that Teflon away, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's going to kill you. And we go, but it's so convenient. <laughs> there is this sort of like, sort of mini subgenre of the bad corporation. Yes. Film, you do see that now and then, um, especially legal dramas, the lawsuit drama mm -hmm. against the bad corporation, and they're going to pull every dirty trick and they have all the fancy lawyers, but we regular folks who are, who've had harm done, we're going to fight the good fight. That is a genre. Yes, it is. Yeah. It, it, and there's- Silkwood. There's gratification. There's, there's pleasure in it, I think, for audiences in that- um, uh, we all see ourselves as the people, not as the corporation. None of us is going to identify as the corporation, and none of us, none of us who are properly socially adjusted, uh, admire the corporation or like look up to it. Whereas the biographical movie, as a genre, by its very nature, uh, tends to be looking at someone that we're already all agreeing is like great in some way, right? Or e even if they're, if it's a bi biography of an evil person, a bad person who's done terrible things, we're so sort of interested in what made them tick and why, how they wound up that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the individual figure. And um, in this story in particular, I mean, who would be implicated in all of these evils? It's the United States government and therefore us. Mm-hmm. It would be an interesting place to go, though. I mean, how much more of an interesting story would it be, though? It's just inherently more interesting than this guy who barely has a personality as fleshed out in the movie. His personality is that he understands quantum physics. Okay, but then how limited is Nolan's imagination then that in this moment, this is the version of the story that he tells. Because I feel like all the stories that we're talking about that fill it out, because I feel like if there's anything about this moment of horror that we're living in, of ecological devastation that we're living in, but also this moment of, you know, Me Too and March for Black Lives and all of these histories, previously forgotten histories being made public and understanding the world in a completely different way way than the than the kind of white supremacist focused history that we were told or the great individual the idea that history is a succession of great individuals doing great things that's right that's right and even christopher nolan earlier today he was on fresh air with terry gross and one of the things that he emphasized is how he doesn't like cgi so he needed to do real explosions so that the actors could feel the tension. And I go, Christopher Nolan, if you were Oppenheimer, you would create the bomb and explode <laughs> it because you don't like CGI, which means 
you don't like the imaginary, the imaginary where we can, uh, we can like work right. things out in dream time and the imaginary and dare I say drama therapy, like it's okay. Like if you need to twist off the doll's arms, okay, but don't do it to real people, okay? <laughs> work it out, take a hammer, go out in the backyard and like beat on a piece of plywood with a nail. But that's totally like like Jeremy Strong in Succession, who apparently yeah. oh. uh, when he was when he was in that movie about the Chicago Seven or whatever that he that he asked the director like for the big scene, the big crowd scene where the the police, you know, whatever that he's like, do you think you could use real tear gas so that we could all really like feel what it was like. And it's like the famous Dustin Hoffman story when he was performing with, you know, Laurence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman's like running around the set 20 times. And, right. and Olivier's oh, like, my dear boy. man. Yeah. Yeah. My dear boy, it's called acting. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's the human capacity for, the whole movie's about the human capacity for imagination. Like really you have very talented actors and they are very talented. I'm sure they can go there. I'm sure. Yeah. And and so it's, I think someone like Christopher Nolan for me becomes um, a little bit like I, I say, mm, you can't use your imagination to think out of a different way to show us the bomb. Sit with it longer, dude. Sit with it longer, <laughs> dude. And keep saying, what is a bomb? What is a bomb? What is it? What? is it what is it and then keep asking the question until something that is not as destructive becomes your metaphor but directors like him as my grandmother used to say oh you just put it flat on my head it's just yes. flat on my head it's just it's what you were saying earlier rebecca about inception it's like in fact it's not a puzzle at all you just tell us you go here, here's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to scramble it in a way that I'm going to make you think you're so smart. And oh my God, I just don't understand your references. And like, if I could just be smart like you, I could figure it out. And sometimes you just want to just say, you're actually not as smart as the budget that you have. You just have a big <laughs> budget. This is true. Which it's comes true. back to this thing of like him writing Oppenheimer in first person. How did you access to this information, Maya? I love that. Yeah. He's talked, the, Robert Downey Jr. talked about it. Really? They talk about like it. They gave a copy of the script yes. to actors yes. that was written in first person. Yes, yes. Because he just really wanted it to be from Oppenheimer's point of view. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And I also feel like in this moment where in terms of all of the greatest of TV that we've seen of like multi-episodic, really rich TV, where people go to all kinds of wildly interesting places. Mm. And like those places now are actually within our reach as viewers. Like, you can't even say that viewers aren't ready for it. Like, viewers have been along for the ride of all kinds of, like, very wild, 
complicated modes of storytelling that are strange and weird and get pulled apart and revealed. And then the lack of, of, of bravery or imagination or faith in the audience that we can come on the trip is really that that if no. we're going to do this, it has to be a Wikipedia article. It's not faith in the audience uh, in this case. It's it's right. like Ellen was saying, it's lack of imagination. Absolutely. It's that he can't conceive of another way to tell the story. He's writing the script right. from this character's point of view in first person because he wants it to be from Oppenheimer's point of view. Tell me, anyone, based on that movie, what the hell is Oppenheimer's point of view? Like... How did Robert Oppenheimer feel about communism? How did he actually feel about it? Did you figure that out from this movie? No. Uh, yeah. Like, how did he feel about his wife and children? Is it clear from this movie? Like, the, Well, the baby cried a lot. The baby, they the baby cried, cried a lot. They were pretty noisy. Like, they were pretty noisy. When he was trying to have his big thoughts, it was a little noisy. In the scene <laughs> where he meets his wife, she says, uh, you know, I'm a scientist or I was a scientist and now I'm a housewife and she's clearly upset about it. So what does he do? He marries her and gives her babies. Makes her, makes her housewife. And then she becomes an alcoholic and clearly hates being a housewife. And like, like, did he have feelings about that? Did he have thoughts about that? Did he care? Um, like, I'm not expecting to hear her thoughts and feelings by any means, you know? That's <laughs> like, I get it. That's not going to be part of the story. But for a movie that is ostensibly about him like what insight into him are we being offered what point of view on robert oppenheimer is nolan giving us there's like no point of view here it, it, it's <sighs> sad because you're spending three hours exploring how this person is extraordinary he sees beyond he can see things beyond what ordinary people see and yet we don't know him as a person we don't know what his goals are and at the same time, we don't actually learn anything about the impact of what he did, what the impact that he had on the people who lived in the Los Alamos area, the people who, like Ellen's family, who, who actually made these projects happen on the ground level. And then all the people, yeah, the downwind people and people who were affected by it. Like, there's so much story to tell. And can even be a yeah, Rebecca. It can even be alluded to enough to spark curiosity, and that's what I feel like is happening in the Wikipedia age, in the age of the great epic genius IMAX creator. Is that we have, in a way just given over to their imaginations and lost curiosity and, and where mm. there's no questioning. And I go, the question is the journey, you know, not the statement. Also, in terms of striking visuals that could have taken literally five seconds, visuals of them building this town and shooting cattle in the head, like, that's Say a fucking that. visual. I mean, I don't yeah, know. And then like visual Say that. Yes. Visuals of like the flyers in these Mississippi towns and these black men coming to this new part of the country and building roads and then you see the camera pan up to like Hanford. Like the, there are visuals that would take very little time, but they would be so striking they would stay burned in your head and then you would really 
feel the vast machine that was put into work. Even the the only story that maybe has a little complexity, this betrayal of his communist friends, of this various right. network of this tiny, very insular community of sweet Berkeley academics who are like, lose their whole lives and careers. But even then I saw things about like, some of these people that got reported who were like scientists who ended up living out the rest of their lives, like working on the boxcars of trains. Like there are all of these striking images that are also in the historical record that like it wouldn't take much time. It wouldn't to frame that. And then you have this much richer world that you're in and, and, it's not there at all. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think you just, you summed it up so cleanly with that. Like, because visuals are so seductive and they speak to everyone's language. The eye is the first source. You know, what we see is the first source. So if we just see it, if we see the Japanese, if we see the 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 African Americans from the South. If we see the indigenous natives who, and even just their treaties that weren't honored. That's what happened with the Walla Walla Yakima. All the natives there is that they were told, "Oh yeah, you can still fish here, you can still do rituals here." And then a year later, it's oh yeah, a barbed wire. Exactly. And then like you see them sign that, and then you cut to just the streaming out of the waste into the water. Like these are all beautiful images. It's not like they're boring stories you have to put in because they're good for us and they're like, they're nutritious. Like, no, those are actually way more interesting than any of the That's other visuals. That's right. And it actually makes Oppenheimer more complex, makes the person more complex. Well, thank you, Ellen, so much for coming on. Oh, this was perfect. Maya, Rebecca, this was perfect. So much. Yeah. And and we'll we'll always have you on for anything. If there are any problematic anytime. faves you want to ruin, we are super ready for you anytime. I hope now that no, uh, <laughs> I, mean, like, I don't need any co-signers on that reputation. <laughs> what are some of your problematic faves, Ellen? I want to know. Um, you know, uh, oh God. I mean, come on. I'm problematic because. I'm sort of living in this world right now where I'm just like going, oh, as artists, we are potentially some of the most dangerous people in the world right now <laughs> to do. And, and I'm always like being problematic because I'm talking about, do people understand the difference between life and livelihood, you know? And that yes, that somehow we're just shackled by our livelihoods, which make us rationalize things that slowly like radioactive material just slowly kill us slowly slowly yeah so those things are, are interesting to me and how I go yeah when are we going to start to really talk about class that we be classes become absurd and as I joke and I go and here's the thing once you sit in first class long enough you start looking back at coach and going hmm I'll send you back some cocktails. I'll give you throw some <laughs> or maybe, you know, some wet naps back there, but I'm not coming back there, you know, because convenience and comfort 
even though we're like all about get out of your comfort zone. I go, are you kidding? When am I ever in my fucking comfort zone? I want a comfort zone. No, please, please. I'll take every comfort zone. All right. I love y'all. Thank you for having me on. Oh, oh my God. God we will have you, you on every time, every time you see something and you're ready to just break it the hell down. We are ready oh, to yeah. have you on. I'm telling you, I'm such a lightweight. One Manhattan. It's a strong drink. <laughs> when all is said and done, though, I, I'm kind of glad I saw Oppenheimer just for the opportunity to tear it apart with you ladies. That made it worth it. Thank you. Listeners, what are your thoughts? What are the stories we want to see? What are the visuals that we are missing I think we're realizing the White Male Genius movie ended up being the least interesting version of the movie. So we want to know what the pictures are that we want to see. And we want you to come to our Patreon, which we're going to (laughs) re-secure because it got broken into by my son. And uh, and we want to see you on the Sauce Speakeasy and hear your thoughts. Patreon.com slash Sauce Podcast. Maya, did your son, he already just had a Discord account and he just went to the Sauce Speakeasy? Yeah, correct. Come on. Correct. Was he able to post? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, he posted. And uh, I'm going to read it to you. Oh, <laughs> please. Right now we have a uh, Ziv, Maya's son. <gasps> I feel like the listeners must have enjoyed this. Yeah. Somebody said, welcome. What made you decide to join? And he said, started listening on my own. any particular topic pique your interest and uh and Ziv said my mom taught me to like what she likes and have a similar (laughs) point of view politically and otherwise she uh she always lets me know about the topic before recording I read up on it then listen (laughs) I think that's really precious that your child has an interest in what you are doing here and that you should savor this because it's not going to last much longer. <laughs> he, is, he is on the cusp of teenagerhood. He is on the cusp of teenagerhood, but he's also politically very aware and a, and a passionate reader of the news and politically very right on, you know, and ready. We've been discussing because uh, the youth climate strike is going to happen September 15th. So we've been discussing how to organize a walkout of his uh, middle school for the youth climate strike. So he's a pretty, pretty brilliant right on kid, but we have to secure it so that not just anyone can join. You have to be a patron. I mean, your son is not just anyone, but point taken, point taken, all figured out. But listen, if you want to join us on the Suspeakeasy, you know what? Do it now. Do it now before we close this loophole. <laughs> Just get on there if you can find us on Discord. But also become a patron at patreon.com slash sauce podcast because it's the right thing to do. Correct. And it helps us make this podcast. And whether you do it on the Sauce Speakeasy or elsewhere, we do want to hear your thoughts. You can reach us via email at saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials is at sauce podcast. You can find me at Maya Garance anywhere you're looking for Maya Garances. You can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And we love it 
when you suggest topics for us to ruin. We love it. Some of our best episodes come out of that. So bring it, my friends. Bring it, my dear ones. Until next time, adios, Buzz.